I don't think I was like, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to write books and they're going to be in the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmad, and today I'm chatting with Hala Olyan. Here's a bit about her. Hala Olyan is the author of the novel The Arsonist City. Her novel, Salt Houses, was the winner of the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Arab American Book Award and a finalist for the Chautauqua Prize. She also has four award-winning collections of poetry, most recently, The 29th Year. Her work has been published by The New Yorker, the Academy of American Poets, Lit Hub, The New York Times Book Review, and Guernica. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, where she works as a clinical psychologist. Before I bring up our conversation, I wanted to say that your support of my podcast means a lot to me. The easiest way is to buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. Every coffee you buy me helps keep me alert and this podcast going. I'll add the link in the show notes and I thank you. And now without further ado, pull up a seat, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Hala Alyan, the author of The Arsonist City. Welcome to my podcast, Living Life Through Books. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. You are very welcome. So I just, I have so many questions about your book. I mean, I just, it's like, when I think about your book, it's just all these questions. But so let's just start off with Where did this idea come from and how did you develop it? So the idea came from a dream that I had about a woman coming of age, like a woman in Damascus who wanted to move to Hollywood to be a star. And it was around the time that my grandma, my grandma was still alive, but she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and and wasn't doing very well. And I kind of dreamt the woman as like, it was watching a movie, but also it was like, she was my grandma, but also she was, you know how dreams are. It just felt like there was something about this woman and her journey. And like, she gets to California and she isn't able to make it. And she's really disappointed. That just stuck with me. I woke up and wrote everything I could remember down about the dream. And then just kind of, at the time I was wrapping up salt houses, it was going to be launched. It was going to be published, all this stuff. So I wasn't in in the headspace to write another, to like think about another book. And then fast forward maybe a year and a half. And I was starting to be like, okay, salt houses is out, is out in the world. It's maybe time to think about a longer fiction project. What do I want to sink my teeth into? And I just kept thinking about this woman. And I kept thinking about like, I also at the same time had been writing a little bit about Beirut, like a short story about Beirut's expat culture and like kind of like, you know, all these like different ways that Beirut's incredibly modern and then also kind of like struggling under the weight of its history and was like, I wonder if there's a way to combine these two. What if I make that woman the matriarch? And then from there, sort of the story, the idea started to snowball. I loved it because you started off with, we're talking about Mazna, and, but you started off in the first few chapters with Ava. Yes. And a uh, little bit of Mimi and yeah. Nudge. And yeah. you started off with this Mazna as this annoying mom character. And you started off like going, ah, Mazna, ah, why? Right? right? I mean, I, I don't totally. know if it's intentional or not, but that's how you started it. Totally. And then Mazna is the main character. Right. It just blows my mind. I mean, I think that what I was really aware of wanting to do was, 
I've wanted, I, I've always enjoyed this in movies and in films myself. So it makes sense that I would want to do it is that I really wanted to set something up where it was like, we're seeing the character through the eyes of these other folks and it makes her seem really one dimensional, right? So like through the eyes of her children, she just kind of seems like this shrill, naggy, like, oh, this mom who's like always like lying to get what she wants, like what's her deal? And I love like that in movies and in books where it's like you start with one idea about someone and then you work backwards and you're given the context for them so that by the end of the story, you're like, of course they're nagging you. Of course they're lying. Like, this is how they survive. This is the reason. So I think there, it was, I've, I've always been excited by that prospect of kind of being like, this is what a character is like. And then having the reader believe it and then be like, but this is why the character is like that. And then kind of be like, sort of like tricking you into having empathy for characters that might be a little bit unlikable or do unlikable things. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> It's very, it is, I can't lie, it's very sneaky. It's actually very Mesna-like. It's like controlling the narrative and it's like, this is how I want you to think about this thing. There you go. So who is your favorite character? Such a good question. I think it might be Naj. I, well, maybe Mesna. I mean, I think I enjoyed writing Naj the most because Naj, Naj's sections are the ones that are in Beirut. They're really like steeped in like, art and, and the, the expat culture and like, you know, all of these things that I, being able to write her sections meant that I could live in that place a little bit. Like I could kind of go back to Beirut mentally and, and hang out there for, for chapters at a time. So I really enjoyed that. I think probably the most, so I would say Naj maybe is my favorite character, but I think the most fulfilling character to write was Mesna because I do think for everything that I just said, like Mesna seems like she's really one dimensional through certain views, but then actually you get a sense of who she is and why she became that way. And yeah, and I, and I hope by the end have like a ton of empathy for her. I find her to be very, like a very sympathetic character by the end. So tell me about Idris. Idris, you know, I mean, Idris is tough, like, I, Idris was a tough character to write because if you notice, he's the only one that doesn't have his own section until the very end. So he, we don't actually hear him speak from his perspective until the very end of the book. And because of things that get revealed, I needed it, plot-wise, I needed it to be that way. So there was, there, that, that, my hands were sort of tied in that sense. But also I think the story was Mezna's story. And, and I think Idris, like, he also is somebody that we see through the eyes of Mezna and then we get the depth of him through more of the children. The children love him very much. And they and we and we get more of that like three-dimensionality through the children, through some of his actions, and then at the very end through him himself. But he, I think he's somebody that wanted Mezna so deeply that he staked, he kind of sacrificed his future for it. Like he was sort of like, I'd rather be unhappy and with this person than not have this person. And that's what he got. You know, that's what I think that's what happens when you try to control people is that you you might get them in presence. I mean, he woke up next to Mezna every day, which is what he wanted. And he had breakfast with her and he had children with her, but he never he never fully got her heart because it belonged somewhere else. Right. And that he knew was... he signed up for that, which is a really hard thing. It's, it's That's pretty intense. It, it's your whole book is pretty intense. I'll tell you. I mean, it's like, dude, OK, you have Idris doing all of this. And then I'll tell you that scene in the parking lot. Oh my oh. God. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, because that was be intense. Very, right? Yeah, it was intense because there was a part of me that goes in the very beginning when the phone call came and he's like, oh, it's the director. It's a part of me that goes, hmm, but that's not Idris's character. 
And you know, you automatically, boom, that's not Idris's character. You move on. You assume. You, yeah, you just, because yeah, you just assume it, although you doubt it, because I'll be very honest, there are- Yeah, there's warning flags. Yeah, there's definitely some red, red flags with Idris. I mean, what you learn is that Idris is somebody that's willing to do whatever it takes to keep Mazna. And he kind of, I think by the end of the book has sort of learned the lesson that like it didn't work, but like it's, it is really, there's something about him that is kind of heartbreaking in a way that the other characters aren't because he is so, his being and his happiness and everything is so tied up in another person. It's so tight. He's very deeply codependent. Like it's very tied up in like keeping Mesna and controlling Mesna. And, and in the end, all it does is make her resent him. So there and, is sort of like that tragedy to it. No, it is a tragedy because ultimately he's choking her. Exactly. You know, you, you want to you yeah. hold tight to something. You hold it so tight. You can't breathe. Exactly. That's exactly right. It, yeah. it's, um, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. So how do you stay so grounded and down to earth while you write this amazing book? First of all, thank you. Um, I, I don't, because I don't really think of it. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just sort of, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, I guess, absent-minded person. I don't really like, like, I'm, I'm kind of like, I finish something and then I finish it and I just am like, now I'm trying to think of what I'm going to do next. Not, not in like a frantic way, but just in like, I spent my time with that family. I grieved their loss. I always get a little bit depressed after I finish a book. Um, and I'm always like, oh, those characters. So like, I, you know, I've mourned the ending of like my time with them. And then I, I, I start to work on something else. But the problem is by the time a book is in a reader's hands, it's been like two years since I've written it. So I've already like kind of been working. You know what I mean? Like I've, right. I've, I've had enough time to say goodbye to the family and to sort of accept that like my time with them is done. So I think that might be part of what comes across as being very casual is it's really more that I'm like, no, I got deeply sad when I finished the book and I was very like attached to these characters, but I've already done that work by the time that like, you know, I've done interviews, yeah. So you're like, hey, the funeral took place two years ago. I mean, now- exactly. like, <laughs> I've, I've already grieved them. I've already said goodbye. Like I've already had my grief work. So now I'm just like, I'm in a place where I've come to terms with the fact that like they're there. Yeah, like my time with them is over. Right, right. Ah. So um, what makes you happy? What a beautiful question. What if I was just like nothing? No. <laughs> I think I'm, I, I am happy when I am present in my life. And I say that cautiously or like I say that methodically because it's not necessarily when everything is amazing because I've had times in my life where everything is going great and I'm miserable because I'm spiraling or I'm in my head or I'm super anxious or I'm over obsessing or I'm whatever I think I would say I'm happy when I am in reality and I'm actually letting it unfold as it's unfolding and I'm in my life minute by minute by minute obviously unless you're super enlightened you're not going to do that on like an ongoing basis but I think the days where I'm like really plugged into myself and I'm writing I think what makes me happy is if I have a day where I'm present where I write a little bit where I watch or read something that makes me laugh where I do a little bit of reading in a book that's like really exciting and has its grips in me where I get to spend some time talking to family and friends like I'm, I'm good. Like, and if I, and, and on top of that, I think the cherry on top would be if I feel like I did something of service. So like, if I feel like I really helped the client that day, or I talked to a student and like helped them figure something out. I'm like, those are like, those are my, those are my happy days. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Hey, tell me about your um, writing process. 
with this book and yeah. just your, your writing journey in general, like from when sure. did you know you wanted to be a writer, sure. uh, all of that, maybe you will want to be a writer at five. I don't know. You know, I did. I mean, I think so. So I don't know if I wanted to be a writer, capital R or capital R. I don't know how to spell <laughs> Is hey, what we you, just learned. You wanted um, to be a writer, not a speller, but let's go. <laughs> you're like, you can use Microsoft for the word. It's fine. Um, right. So I, so I wrote from when I was like six, seven, eight, like I would always, I wrote, I was a very bookish child. I read a ton and I would write all these little stories. And then I wrote these like little terrible poems that were very sweet. Um, and I've always written some, to some extent throughout my life, but I don't, I don't think I was like, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to write books and they're going to be in the world. I think in some ways a goal like that seemed too lofty and unrealistic because I also, this is sort of an immigrant household thing, at least in my experience, where it's like, I came of age in a family that like had sought asylum to the States. You know, we were like, had to restart over entirely fine in terms of socioeconomically, like really like build, build from the ground up after Kuwait's invasion. Um, and then... There was a lot of emphasis in my family on like higher education, but like practical higher education. So I don't think if I'd been like, I want to do an MFA, they would be like, what are you talking about? So it was like, you know, you're going to get, there was an assumption that you're going to get a master's, you're going to get a doctoral degree, you're going to get a whatever, but it's like, make it, do it in something practical. So I, at the same time, I grew up in a house where people loved books. My father like was always like talking to me about books that I was reading. So I think I, I kind of had these two parts of myself encouraged at the same time quietly where it was like the the writer and the reader was encouraged and was like it, I was nurtured in that way in my household it just there wasn't a lot of like so do that as a career it was like do that that's important make sure that you make space for doing that but also what's your day job gonna be? you know so I think that was that was kind of how it ended up playing out so the, I think the first moment I really was like oh I might publish something was probably in my early 20s when I like got a few poems accepted into journals and I was like maybe I could like actually have a book of poems like that was the first time it really started to like be something that felt like could happen that's so cool and so then how did this novel like writing start like okay so you got this book of poems mm -hmm. and then you get an idea for a book and right right so 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 the the publishing journey is I was doing these open mics in Manhattan and these wonderful Pete and Kate, uh, Pete and Kat have this small press called Three Rooms Press, and they also ran the open mic. And I went back, you know, over and over for like a year, year and a half, whatever. And at some point, they're like, put together some poems. Let's see if we can publish them. And they did. I then published a second collection of poetry and then a third collection of poetry. So I actually had three collections of poetry before the novel came out. And in the midst of all of this, I had started working on some short stories. I started working on like what, or rather, what I thought were short stories. Um, which was like, you know, what ended up being the beginning of Saw Houses because they ended up being like, oh, I started writing about this, this, you know, this man and like pre-67 Palestine. And then was like, I'm really curious about his sister. Maybe I'll write a section from his sister. And I'm also curious about the mom. Let me write something about the mom. And then I realized, oh, you're actually just writing interconnected stories that is also known as a novel. Um, so it's sort of like unfolded in that way. Um, and then when that was done and in the world, that's when I started being like, what, what about this woman that I had dreamt about? I wonder if there's a way to write about Beirut. I really wanted to tell a story about Beirut. So it's always like, there's always like some image or some like wisp of a story and then kind of weaving it together from there. How do you, uh, like, how do, how's your publishing journey like? Because I mean, I know you already had probably contacts through your poetry or how did that work? 
You know, the poetry didn't help as much as you think. The, the poetry is, I mean, poetry is very small, right? So it's like poetry, you're lucky if you're friends by your poetry books. I mean, like poet, but poets by poets books, you know what I mean? Like in general, it's a small community. Um, it's kind of niche. I think it's becoming less so, which is wonderful. But when I was coming up and publishing books, it was like pretty small, your friends, your family, that's, that, those are the people you're kind of selling the book to. So it didn't, the context that I made in poetry didn't necessarily translate over for fiction. What I did was get in touch with a couple of people that I knew that had published in fiction and asked them how they did it. Um, I have a few friends that had done their MFA at Columbia and they were like lovely resources and talked to me about what they had learned through that program um, in terms of publishing. And then I just, I made a list of agents that had represented books that I, that I loved and or that I felt were similar to what I wrote. You know, so I kind of like went about it that way. And then once I had that out there, what I want to add that list, I just started to like basically go on their websites, see, see what the querying process was for them and just take it from there. Wow. So you, you just kept going the normal way. Just kept doing it. Yeah. I mean, there was no, yeah, there were no shortcuts. I mean, again, it wasn't like having published in poetry did not translate into shortcuts in fiction, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. Like it just, it was there, there were sort of different realms because again, poetry, there's not the same amount of gatekeeping. You don't need like in fiction, you need a an agent usually, generally right. speaking. In poetry, you, you don't a lot of the time. You can kind of you know submit directly to houses, and that's what I did. Cool. So um, when you got agents, how many like how many did you apply to? Did you get any rejects? Oh my god, I mostly rejection. Yeah, I apply. I mean, I must have applied to like twenty five or something, and. Uh -huh. I most of them were like, no, based on the idea. I mean, the, the, the way you query a lot of folks, what I was doing, it was that you just send in like a summary of the book before you, like, it's just like a cover letter. And in that cover letter is like a paragraph or two about the book. So even before people read sample pages, they'd be like, no, we're good. Sorry, we're just, I'm not interested in this idea. Um, so most people rejected based on just literally the cover letter. A couple of people asked for longer things and then rejected based on that. And then I got like three or four that were, I think it was four total that were like interested in representation or having further conversations about representation and then connected the most with, with Michelle, with the person that I ended up working with. Wow. And then you got HMH. That's crazy. And, and then she got HMH. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, and then she, she was, you know, she, I think she had like had authors that had published with them before and, you know, had a great relationship with um, Lauren, who was the person that ended up being my editor for Salt Houses and just kind of like, you know, I, I spoke with a, there were a few houses, it went to auction, which was really exciting. And there were a few houses that were interested. And it just that was like, you know, I, I connected with Lauren and kind of with the HMH like vibe and ethos the most. And, and yeah, and then ended up doing it for Arsenal City too. Way, way, way cool. And the 29th year, they also published a poetry collection of mine, which was very sweet. Wow, way yeah. cool. Okay, back to Arsenal City. What parts were challenging to write like to you? like that question um I think I struggled with the history like I I struggled with how to capture Beirut during the war because I wanted and similarly to talk about the conflicts that were you know sort of the relationship between Syria and Lebanon and what happened in like sort of everything that was happening in Syria in the last like 15 10 years whatever and and how that spills over into Lebanon and how the civil war had things that were happening that were spilling over into Syria like I think talking about the the regional conflicts turmoil oppression all of those things was it felt like very delicate 
and I was trying to think of ways to do it where I wasn't over like sort of like speaking down to the reader but also having a plot and a narrative that was inclusive enough that even if somebody didn't know anything about the history, they could like, I mean, I still think readers, if they didn't know about the region, still probably have to do some Googling, which is, I feel comfortable with asking that work of readers, but I, but I wanted to have like enough of like a foundation built into the story and into the dialogue and whatever, so that people could kind of gather what was happening. Um, and that was tricky. So that sort of threading that needle between under explaining and over explaining. So what was your um, favorite scene to write? And your favorite scene in general? Ooh. Ooh. I think my favorite scene, I haven't been asked this before, I love it. I think my favorite scene to write, and honestly, maybe my favorite scene in general, is the concert at the end. Um, is the, it's when oh. the family, yeah, when, when, when Naj sort of like brings her brother up, um, and then afterwards when Mesna sort of like performing in the parking lot like I think that that moment of getting to see just getting to see the family like kind of connect and like mend in these small ways also the scene where like the siblings all take drugs and go have, <laughs> like have these ridiculous arguments and adventures and like you know make make dubious decisions that was, that one was really fun so maybe that was the funnest one to write but the one that felt the most gratifying just as a as a as a, as a reader because you're also kind of reading this or making these things up was probably the one the concert at the end so tell me about your next book so there's a couple there's i'm i'm working on i mean i'm always working on poems i'm always sort of puttering around with poems but in terms of like proper collections and whatnot or a proper like full-length book i have a novel that I put aside at the beginning of COVID that I'm starting to pick back up again, which is really scary. It's right here, actually. I printed it out and it's, it's like a significant amount of Wow, I love it's, it. It's a dry, I mean, this is like maybe 40% has been written. I write really long first draft and then have to do a lot of cutting, but, but it's, um, I need to reread it because I left it a year ago and haven't read it since. I need to reread it. And then I think there are some narrative kinks that I need to work out. Um, but it's essentially about a woman who during college, her college roommate was murdered and she, it was very intense. And so she actually leaves Savannah, Georgia, which is where she's from. She's an Arab of Arab descent um, and then moves to Paris. And then something brings her back to Savannah a decade later. And she kind of uses that opportunity to sort of dig into and figure out what may have happened to her roommate. So it's got a little bit of a th thrillery element to it, which is unlike anything I've written before. So that's been kind of exciting. And then I have an, a nonfiction book about erasure where it's sort of explorations of different manifestations of erasure. So the ways that we, you know, people get erased from the outside in through like oppression, racism, misogyny, et cetera, but then also erased from the inside, like from the inside out, meaning like, or sorry, intrapsychically, meaning like, eating disorder, substance abuse, codependency, like what are the ways in which we erase ourselves and what are, what's, what are the antidotes to that? Wow. Yeah. What advice do you have for um, people like me? I'm a wannabe writer. I have a second draft sitting. Yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah, so what advice do you have for people like me? The wannabes, you know? I mean, the, the, I, can I tell you something? You Please. Know, everyone's a wannabe. Like, I think, I think that the reality is that like, okay, I wrote a book, but that doesn't guarantee I'll write another one. So if you're writing, you're, you're a wannabe writer. Like there, like there's something about that, like that you're kind of, I, I still think of myself like 
and I probably will for the rest of my life. Like I'm working on this draft here and I'm like, oh, I really want this thing to work. I don't know if it will, maybe it doesn't work. Like, I think that doubt is, is really part of the process. And I think the more we can let doubt and uncertainty in and just kind of accept it as part of what this, what literally what we're signing up for when we're trying to make and create art, I think the sooner we don't grapple with it or think of it as something we have to like exercise or like, you know, get out of our lives. So I would say, I would say there, I would say like starting there, I think that's a big part of it for me. And then the other thing I would say is like, do it for the process. Okay. As, as if not more than for the result, because the result is beautiful, but the result is not the thing that's going to keep you going day in and day out, working out like a narrative that might be tricky or complicated, or when you get really frustrated and you don't want to do this anymore, which is going to happen to all writers. Like, I think it's like, find something about the process to, to like, to sink your teeth into and like, remind yourself on a daily if not semi-daily basis why it is that you write why it is that you make okay well we're coming close to the end so I'm going to ask you I'll do I'll make it two questions okay first one it's not easy your top five favorite books of all time I mean, here's the problem. I blank whenever anyone asks me about, so it's like, a, it's as if I've never read a book in my life. So top five <laughs> books would be Interpreter of Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri. I'm going to say The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan because it was one of the most influential books when I was growing up. And now I can't remember any other books. The Namesake, actually by Jhumpa Lahiri was also up there. I mean, now I'm just going to say stuff I've read recently, which is fine. Which is fine. I really loved, recently I really loved Brit Bennett's, and now I've forgotten the name of the book. The Mothers? Oh, no, the, the Vanishing Half. The Vanishing Half. I loved that book. And I really loved Kylie Reed's. Oh, Such a Fun Age. No, wrong one. I am terrible with titles. Yes, <laughs> such, a fun, such a Fun Age was beautiful. I okay. Really, in terms of poetry, I would recommend At the Nadnan's Time. I've been like sort of slowly reading that lately. It's beautiful. Yeah, those are okay. some. Okay, last question. Yes. Describe your book. The Arsonist City in three words. Ooh. Ooh doesn't count. <laughs> okay, okay. Secrets come out. I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. You are awesome. Hey. <laughs> you are awesome. <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> so, Hala, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. I'm sorry. I really appreciate all your support. Thank you. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. I'm happy Hala found time for me in her busy schedule. If you want to know more about her or her books, go to her website at halaalyan.com. Upcoming. I think we're going to have month in review after all. And also our next month book club is of Women and Salt by Gabriela Garcia. So I do hope you'll all stick around and join us. Before I go, if you are on the audio app Clubhouse, please look up my name and follow me there. I'll be happy to do a room with you. Living a Life Through Books is a club now on Clubhouse, so please join the club. One more club information, I have several invites under the Living a Life Through Books club on Clubhouse, so if you want to get in, contact me. 
I want to talk a bit about a great audiobook app, Libro.fm, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your local favorite bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from bestsellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of this podcast can get two books for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that is L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code L-L-T-B podcast. With every listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'll add the links in the show notes. If you love this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. Join the conversation with me on the audio app called Swell. My tag on Swell is at Bookish Podcast. It's a different kind of audio app, but it's still a good way to reach me. My website is shanazahmed.com. That is S. H-A-H-N-A-Z-A-H-M-E-D.com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavic. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. Mm-hmm.